0: You all have probably heard it said that circumstances do not make your character, they reveal it. Um, You don't know if you have a servant's heart, for example, if you serve people. How do you know if you have a servant's heart? It's not by serving all the time, it's by when somebody treats you like a servant, do you bristle? That's how you know if you have a servant's heart. So circumstances don't so much make character as they reveal it. And I do think circumstances can certainly forge character. Uh, Our military training systems are predicated on doing hard things together uh, to form that sense of bond and camaraderie and trust, so that when I get in a foxhole with you, I know I can trust you. We've already done some hard things together. So I do think circumstances can forge character, but they often and most often reveal it. Are you a servant? Well, When's the last time you've been treated like one? And do you on the inside, even if you do all the outward things really sparkly and well, do you love it? Do you, are you willing to be treated that way? Can people boss you around? Well, the circumstances, I'm trying to say, reveal our character. There's also a psychological self. I'm not trying to get too psychoanalytical here on a Sunday morning over God's Word, but... You're a very complex creature. You have visceral, innate responses to stimuli. If you're a ticklish kid and mom tickles you, you laugh. You can't help it. You also have responses to other kinds of stimuli. It's innate, it's part of you, it's the good way God wired you. Your psychological self tends to recoil at fear. Now, I understand some have more fight and some have more flight, but we all have some flight if you feel like you're about to die. You may, like so many in our varieties of service industries, you may boldly run into the face of fear for the sake of protecting others but you do have to calculate your steps to persuade yourself to do it. Because we all have an innate natural instinct for self-preservation. So if you're in a circumstance where you feel like you're about to die, something kicks in that's hardwired into you by God, it's part of your humanity to recoil at a sense of danger and especially at the prospect of death. That's why we rightly deem people heroic When they run towards danger, especially to protect others without regard for personal safety, in our passage, Peter's in total self-protection mode as Jesus is in run-toward-danger-to-protect-others mode. Peter, in his typical overconfidence, thought that he knew how he would respond if he were in... A life or death situation that was a circumstance where someone was trying to kill his Lord Jesus. Just a couple hours before our text, which is going to be in John 18, just a couple of hours before that on the same day, Peter confidently asserted how he would respond if his best friend were were in danger of being murdered. Peter was certain And he said so, that he was, quote, ready to die with Jesus. Matthew and Mark's gospel, not John, tell us that Peter insisted, quote, he kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Mark 14, Matthew 26. But when push came to shove, when the moment of truth actually arrived, Peter didn't know himself, as well as he thought he did. Jesus, of course, was right. When Peter said to Jesus on this night, a few hours before our passage, though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Today's sermon text contains Peter's first denial of Jesus John separates the denials of Peter and interweaves them with the trials of Jesus. I think that's purposeful for a reason I'll try to draw it in a moment. But at the same time, Peter is denying Jesus for the first time, we encounter what the text calls another disciple who does not deny Jesus. And in preparation for your heart and mind, as we now turn to read the passage, I want to try to show you the difference that I believe the Bible gives for why one disciple denies Jesus and another does not. And I want to highlight especially the extraordinary grace of God in Christ for both of them. And for all who among us today will repent of their Christ-denying sin. John 18, verse 15 hear the word of the Lord. Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire for it was cold and they were warming themselves and Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. Join me as we pray together. Father, I come boldly to the throne of grace with these precious people. And we confess that we're the deniers, we're the cowards. We're the ones who've turned our back on Jesus 10,000 times. Some of us even today, some of us right now. We thank you that you, Jesus, never one time turn your back on your people. We thank you, Jesus, that you are not ashamed to call us your brethren. And that you proved it by willingly being led to an execution at the hands of men so that people like us could be made right with God forever. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you. We exalt you. We praise you. We honor you. We magnify you. We love you. Thank you, Jesus. Warm our heart, not by Peter's charcoal fire, but by the altar of the cross, the heat of your love. Warm our heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Four things I hope in the next few minutes to see in these four verses. First, like we did last week, I want you to see again in your mind's eye the cast of characters. First, there's obviously Peter, Uh, he's well in view. In verse 15, we see Simon Peter. John does not add a detail in this moment that is found in the other three Gospels Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's an important detail, uh, I believe, to draw out. uh, John sort of alludes to it. The others are explicit about it. All three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, want us to see the space, the distance between Peter and Jesus. We're told by all three other gospel writers, Mark 14, Matthew 26, and Luke 22, that Peter was following, quote, at a distance. So can you see him there? Envision Peter, where is he in this passage? I don't know that you can see his whole body, you can see at least his upper torso. He's standing at the door of the courtyard to the priest's chambers outside the temple. You can hardly see him because as I said, his body's behind the wall or behind the gate, but he's looking in. He's just on the outside of the courtyard and he wants to get a look at what's happening to Jesus. So there's Peter, that's cast of characters, number one. Number two, there is, as I mentioned, quote, another disciple. Verse 15, another disciple. Been tons of conjecture about the identity of this disciple through the ages. Most agree that this was John, the writer of the gospel for a variety of reasons. One is John never names himself in the entire gospel of John. I do suspect this is John the apostle, but there is no doubt that John wants us to see the difference in proximity between this other disciple and Peter initially in this courtyard. This disciple is close to Jesus. Can you see him? We're actually told very meticulously that this disciple, verse 15, quote, entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Now, the main point that John's trying to draw is that he's known to the high priest. Therefore, he was permitted to go into the court. Therefore, he was permitted in just a moment to uh, allow Peter to gain access as well. But I do want you to see the proximity that he is with Jesus. Now, what's Jesus' physical situation? He's bound, he's tied up, he's being led. The passage has told us all of those descriptors. So to say that John enters with him means he's walking side by side with a man who is tied up, being led, no doubt, to an execution. From the vantage point that John gives us, you can see Jesus. You can see this disciple walking in lockstep with Jesus in this very harrowing moment. Is he in fight or is he in flight? Or is there something else at work? Third, there's Jesus. We're told in the previous passage that he is bound, as I just mentioned. His hands are tied, likely, as I pointed out last Sunday, with leather straps, his hands being tied behind his back. It's the same hand that he had just used to heal Malchus's ear. But there's Jesus. Can you see him in your mind's eye? He was. As Isaiah 53 says in this moment, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Jesus is totally silent in our passage. And then fourth, there is a girl. Can you see her? Look away from this other disciple, scan around the scrum of people that are filling this little atrium of the priest's housing courtyard. It's just beside the temple. Mark tells us it's actually below, not below as in the first floor of a three or four-story building. It's below as in Temple Mount. Here's the temple. Here's the priest's court. And it's surrounded by the priestly homes from the priestly family, Annas, Caiaphas, Annas's five sons, who had been priests, his grandson. There's their houses. Here's a little courtyard. That's where we're at. Do you see this little girl? She's right at the entrance to the gate. You can't miss her. It's not the temple gate, as I mentioned, it's the courtyard of Annas and Caiaphas, it's the priestly courtyard. You're somewhere in this atrium, and you're looking at this little girl. She's responsible to make sure nobody gets in who's not vetted. That's her job. She's the bouncer. She's got her little digital thing out like you have when you go into a a, a Grizzly game at FedEx Forum and she and she's scanning everybody's Ticketmaster barcode. Nobody gets in without her permission. She never applied for this job. She wasn't a college student trying to pick up more hours on the weekend. She is a slave girl. Somebody conscripted her into this job. She's not getting paid to be there. She's a slave doing this undesirable job. Look at her. Fifth and finally, cast of characters, there are more slaves and there are officers. We're told so in verse 18. As your eyes scan this scene... You're seeing part of Peter looking in. You're seeing the slave girl keeping him from entering. You're seeing John, I presume, the beloved disciple right beside Jesus. You see Jesus, his hands are bound. And now you see this, this scrum of people. You can't help but notice the smell of burning charcoal. It's not a wood fire, it's a charcoal fire. They didn't have charcoal bricks like you buy in a bag to put on your grill today. It would have been a big block of charcoal. You can smell it. And as you scan around You see from the glow of that charcoal fire, a number of people warming themselves, and it's almost subconscious. You're not taking inventory of where they picked their wardrobe, but you can tell just by the way people are dressed off the glow of that fire that is causing their bodies to be illumined, that there are slaves, verse 18, and there are officers. You can tell it instinctively by what they're wearing. These are likely the Jewish officers. Some of them officers because they are temple police That's the cast of characters. And more than you can see any of that, you can feel the intensity of the increasingly chaotic scene rising. Number two, I want you to see something else. Not the cast of characters. I want you to see the hand of God. The unlimited providence of God, he has ordered every single day of your life. Your great grandmother was born where she was born, raised where she was raised, lived where she lived, married who she married, so that four generations later, three, here you are. God's providence touches every life. He's in total control. We're told, and this is how I believe we see the hand of God's providence in verses 15 and 16, that this other disciple was quote, known to the high priest. He was known. The word for known is a relational knowing. We're told it twice, verse 15 and verse 16, that the other disciple is known to the high priest. Some posit that there was no way that this could be John, the writer of the gospel, because we know he was just a lowly fisherman. But if you go back to the passage and read carefully, that's not conclusive either because this fisherman's family had enough money to also hire servants. So they were people of some prominence, maybe a big fishing business, And known to a lot of people in the area. So it's not conclusive because he was a fisherman. There's no way he could have known the high priest. How else might John, who I'm going to try to give some substance to why I think it's him. And I'm going to labor that for a little bit because of a reason that's coming later. We don't know for sure. Not trying to build an argument from silence. Not trying to make the Bible say something it doesn't say. This is not a watertight argument. But there is Some reason and good reason, I would say, that many throughout church history, Polycrates, second century bishop of of Ephesus, explicitly says this is John. He lived one generation removed, perhaps overlapping lifetimes with John. How do you get there? How would John be known to the high priest if he's a disciple of Jesus? Well, let me try to connect some dots. Maybe you've heard this before. It is suspected for good reason that Salome is John's mom. Mark 15, 40, Mark 16, 1, Salome is John's mom. If that's the case, we know for sure that Salome is Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister. Mary has a cousin whose name is Elizabeth, who's John the Baptist's mom, whose husband, Zacharias, was what? Priest. Priest. When John the Baptist was born, he was struck with muteness, couldn't speak until he named John. You remember the story. So if Zacharias is John's relative, then John would have still been known to the priestly family when we get to John 18. That's how many connect the dots. New American Commentary even says, indeed, John the son of Zebedee had priestly connections. His mother was Salome, his sister, the sister of the Virgin Mary. And Mary was a kinswoman, Luke one thirty six, of Elizabeth, who was of the daughters of Aaron, the priestly lion, Luke 1.5. Hence, John was connected with a priestly family on his mother's side, and there is no improbability, therefore, in his being known to the high priest. That's how a lot of people get the connection. While we may not be able to say with certainty this is how John was known to the high priest, we can say with certainty that this other disciple was definitely known to the high priest. Here's the point I want to draw out. God providentially arranges every single person's life for his purposes. He's in control. Had this disciple not been known to the priest, Peter's denial would not have happened in this way. He would not have been permitted to go into the courtyard he would not have been able to vouch for Peter to enter. Then Peter never would have been asked that fateful question by the servant girl. And Peter's first denial would never have happened in this way. So before it ever happened, Jesus told Peter that he knew it would happen, namely that Peter would deny Jesus this night three times. Jesus not only knew how, I believe he knew uh, that it would happen, he knew how. He knew that I'm gonna say purposes of my perspective, John's relationship to the high priest from potentially a random family connection would be Peter's access to fulfill Jesus's difficult prophecy. Here's my point. God is in control. He was in control of the random relationship of the other disciple to the high priest, and he was in control In some complex way of understanding the providence of God that we can't totally see, he was in control of setting up the denials of Peter. And I want you to see that his providence in the lives of the other disciple, in the life of the other disciple, and in the life of Peter, had the same purpose. They both went on to walk with Christ. Do not let any person lay at God's doorstep the blame on the basis of his providence for why you don't know and walk with Jesus. If you weaponize God's sovereignty as an excuse not to follow Jesus, you're doing the exact opposite of how the Bible speaks of the providence of God. Let me give you one glorious example. This would be a wonderful time to turn on your listening ears. Acts 17 God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed time and the boundary of their habitation that they would seek God. That's why he's ordered your life the way he ordered it. I got to keep reading because it's too good to stop. That they might seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere, you want to talk about God's providence? All people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God is in control of your life, just like he was this other disciple who happened to know the high priest. So there's the context. We've seen the cast of characters, and we've seen a little bit of the providential hand of God. Now I want you to listen, not see. I want you to hear. Hear the conversation. Are you able to take in all that's happening in this moment? As you notice this other disciple who walked in with Jesus, John is uh, purposeful to to labor that point, can you see him now walk away from Jesus? The passage wants you to. He's no longer standing there with Annas and the bound Christ. He leaves him and he kind of rustles and uh, meanders through the crowd. this disciple looks to be in a hurry to get to the door. Maybe he's leaving. Your eyes are fixed on him. He's weaving through the crowd. When he makes it to the gate, he stops. He doesn't leave. You can see him get the attention of the slave girl who's the gatekeeper. The conversation's hard for you to make out, but you can tell just by mannerisms that John is pointing to Peter and to himself or this beloved disciple. Peter, me, Peter, me. I know him. He does it again. Clearly now you can discern that he's advocating for Peter to join him inside. Next thing you know, the slave girl puts down her little gadget to scan his Ticketmaster barcode and she picks up her wand, the little metal detector wand, and she scans Peter just like you get scanned when you go into these venues. And much to your surprise, it doesn't beep. He left his dagger in the Garden of Gethsemane with which he cut off Malchus's ear. So he's in the clear, right? No beep. She's about to wave him in. Just then she stops him. She holds the wand out in front of him. And she says, verse 17, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? The question is something akin to, my job is to make sure nobody gets in here who's not on the side of that man. You're not also with him, are you? That's interesting because John tells us this other disciple is clearly a disciple of Jesus, so he's clearly with him, but his relationship to the high priest may have given him some kind of extra access. Although it only lasts a split second before Peter responds, perhaps you can see the consternation in his face. Maybe you can see the wheels turning. Maybe he's not a fast processor and just spits out his response. Maybe you can see him thinking, almost hearing him think it, if I say yes, she's not letting me in no matter who this other disciple friend, perhaps John, knows. Because Peter's a Jew, maybe you can also imagine that his quick-witted thinking, which he had displayed so many times prolifically, maybe you can imagine that he's thinking of his Jewish Old Testament, and when another liar was blessed by God, when Rahab in the Old Testament lied about hiding the spies, and she was counted among God's faithful, so there's some way Peter may be thinking, oh, if I lie here, God will just let it go. Peter's facing a game time decision, and though it only takes a split second, you're on the edge of your seat. What seems like five minutes has delayed and only lasted a split second, and then you hear a Galilean accent rise above the crowd and you know it's Peter talking. He does not say no. I think this is super important. He does not say no. There's a Greek word for no, two little letters, sounds like M-E, may. He doesn't say no. He says, uk me. I am not. Ten verses earlier, he heard another person say the same phrase the opposite way, ego ami, I am. Grammatically, John pins an exact negation from Peter's lips of his core identity. In contrast to Jesus' affirmation of his core identity. We're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. I am. Are you one of his defo- followers? I am not. With that, can you see it? The slave girl drops her wand and tells Peter to come on in. Where does he go next? Not to Jesus. He hangs his head, he shuffles his feet, but instead of going to Jesus, which would have probably outed him as a liar, he instead meanders over toward that charcoal fire, and he starts warming up his body, but no amount of heat from that fire could thaw out his sin cold heart wouldn't want to be too uncomfortable would you Peter while you're denying the Lord who's in process of dying for your sins you know some of us want to get rid of sin in our life only insofar as it makes life a little more comfortable but we'll hang on to it if the cost means following Jesus is less comfortable. Peter warms himself. Can you see Jesus shivering in the cold of night, not near the charcoal fire? And Peter, oh so comfortable, warm on the outside, cold as an iceberg on the inside. Fourth and finally, you've seen the cast. You know where we're at you heard a little bit of the conversation now here's why i gave my rendition of how you get to john possibly being the other disciple i think there's another contextual clue the three rules of bible interpretation number one context number two context number three context two chapters later john is going to call himself another disciple Nobody denies that the one who ran with Peter to the tomb is John. All the other gospel writers tell us it's John. You don't need special powers of interpretation to figure it out. I believe the other disciple in this passage is also John. But here's what I want to draw out. Whether it's him or not, it's not an argument from silence to say. I think there's one more thing God the Holy Spirit wants us to see in these verses. It's the power of knowing that you're loved. Some of us live with an invisible wall around us all the time. It's an unseen, impenetrable silo. You will not let anybody in here. Nobody gets in because it gives us a false sense of security and of safety. If I hold others at arm's length, you can get this close, but you can't come all the way in. It gives us that false sense of security because if they leave us or if they wound us, we believe that we'll feel a little less pain. As long as we don't let anybody in, then nobody can hurt us too deeply, so goes the faulty logic. Sometimes this wall, let me be clear, is the result of real pain, having actually been hurt by those that we love and trusted. Sometimes this wall, is the result of anticipated pain, thinking that if somebody really knew us, they wouldn't truly love us. So for one reason or another, we keep people just outside the wall. And to find out, for those of us who have that wall, whether or not other people really love us like we love them, do you know what we do? We do an anti-gospel. We hurt them and see if they'll come back. We stab, we prick, we use words and actions that cause pain, and if they come back, maybe they really love us. You know what the gospel does? The gospel takes the wound and keeps coming. The gospel receives the pain, Jesus the Lord, and he keeps pursuing go back to that wall for just a second. If you keep people just outside of it, then they can't hurt you, right? Wrong. I want all of you to go with me here. It's like the doctor says it may sting a little bit, but I promise it'll help. When are you most vulnerable? Peter's trying to protect himself. Self-preservation flight kicked in because he feared death physically. He identifies himself with that man, maybe he gets the same treatment. When do you feel the most weak? And if you don't feel vulnerable and weak, you're lying. You're lying to yourself. Not only Should you be able to find the times and the spaces and the places and the relationships and everything else that make you feel weak and out of control and vulnerable, I would argue that's when you're actually poised to be the most free, when you're willing to let your guard down, when you're willing to let others in, but who can you trust to get in there without hurting you? That's the reason for your wall in the first place, right? We all know that Peter was self-preserving. He denies Jesus because he doesn't want to be treated like Jesus was treated. To identify himself with that man under those circumstances could well mean that his hands would soon be tied behind his back and his executioners would soon lead him away to his death also. Self-preservation kicked in and it trumped letting the love of Jesus carry him in his weakest moment. He was willing to walk with Jesus, just not that far. Why didn't the same thing kick in for this other disciple? Why is he seen entering with Jesus side by side, boldly, openly, being known as a disciple in the middle of this chaotic courtyard full of temple police? Why is he so willing to go to the gatekeeper and vouch for somebody else to get close to Jesus in this moment? I don't think it's at all because every, John wants everybody to think that if he's this person that he's very awesome. He never names himself. He's not drawing the attention to him. It isn't about him. It's about the love of Jesus that he had embraced as his modus operandi. It was his controlling principle in life. He knew that he was loved by the king and he was not holding Jesus at arm's length. He had no wall between him and his Lord. There's something so different about this disciple in this moment than Peter. And fundamentally, this is where I'm going to close. I believe it's he knew how deeply he was loved by Jesus. And I want you to walk out of this room knowing that. Peter still had his wall up. I'm going to say John, not John. Jesus had... A, stick of gospel dynamite, he had obliterated the wall that this other disciple had. The reason I'm stressing this is because this is John's favorite designation of himself. I said he doesn't name himself in the gospel of John, but five times he says things like this. He's sitting down at the last supper, he's lying down. He's reclining on Jesus. And he says, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. That's his most core identity. I'm loved. When he's standing at the foot of the cross, he's literally watching Jesus asphyxiate, he's gasping for breath, he's watching Jesus die. He's hearing all seven statements from the cross. When Jesus saw his own mother Mary, John writes this sentence, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold your son. At the empty tomb, in a foot race with Peter. To get there and see if this message is true, that his body's not there anymore, and could it be possibly that he's alive from the dead, Simon Peter, John 20 verse 2, and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. In a boat, after the resurrection, with Peter, before they had seen the risen Christ, and they go back to their old job because they don't know what else to do, so they're fishing again. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. And then finally, when Peter's having a conversation with Jesus and Jesus says in no uncertain terms, you will be martyred for your faith. Peter turns around, looks at all the other disciples, wants to know about them. And John writes it this way, Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now, I want to give you a little historical context, and I promise I'm closing There is good reason to believe John was a teenager when he was a disciple of Jesus during Jesus' earthly life and ministry, a teenager. How do you get there? He lived to about the year AD 95 if you date Revelation that that way. So either he lived to be 150 or he was a teenager when he was a, a disciple. He's almost certainly the youngest of the 12 disciples. Peter, on the other hand, is one of the older, more mature. We know he's married. Jesus raised his mother in law back to health. Peter's not only one of the older, more mature, he's the spokesman, he's the leader, he's the voice. So John's the youngest, and Peter's one of the oldest, if not the oldest. But that young man knew more deeply than the older leader, spokesman of the 12, Peter. That he was loved. He had no wall between him and his Savior. Therefore, I believe he walks with Jesus into the court of the high priest, into the terrors and to the intimidation of men. And because of that, he can love others. John is the apostle of love. He can't get it out of his mouth. First John, he gives 39, or depending on how you count, 45 evidences of being a regenerate true Christian. Almost all of them include loving other people because you know you're loved by God. It's the two great commandments, love God, love neighbor. Do you know yourself to be loved by Jesus? Is it your core identity? If you never said your own name again, but you filled in that space, as the one whom Jesus loves. Is that how you know yourself? I think that's why Peter denies. Jesus knew he would deny, predicted it would happen, it was bound to happen, but that wasn't the end of the story. Peter too eventually knows that he's loved. He's restored three times in that charcoal fire situation by the seashore. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Jesus is just speaking agape over Peter's life and restoring him fully. Circumstances and crowds in John 18 are very, very big to Peter. And I said at the beginning, circumstances don't make your character. They reveal it. The circumstances were big to Peter. The crowds were intimidating to Peter. The torches and the lanterns and the swords and the leather straps around Jesus' wrists and the We'll see next week a prophecy fulfilled from Micah chapter five, Jesus getting clubbed in the face by a grown man. That was big to Peter. But the biggest thing I think to John was knowing that he was loved. See that orders our fears aright. Doesn't make them go away, it just puts them in proper perspective. This is my prayer for the young people of Grace Church, and I prayed it this morning for every teenager and below. That you would know, 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 irrecoverably know that you are loved by the King. John doesn't even know his own name. He just knows he's loved. And if you know that you're loved, that's your deepest self identity, then in the most tense moments of all, when the fear of man is chasing you down like a dragon, you won't respond like Peter. You'll respond like somebody who knows they're loved by Jesus. So here's the open secret. We all care what other people think about us, and people act like they don't, deceiving themselves, and maybe if they're not self-deceived, they're just brazenly lying. You do care. We all care what other people think about us. The fear of man is a very real temptation for us all. And the only thing that can trump it is fearing somebody else more. So the next time we smell a charcoal fire, Peter's never the same again. He has to get rebuked by Paul because he's walking out of step with the gospel. He's not a perfect man, but he's never the same again. What happened to Peter after he denies three times and then gets restored by Jesus, who went through that trial all the way down the Via De La Rosa, the road to the cross, all the way up to Golgotha, died on the cross, was buried dead in the tomb, rose again the third day, and then reveals himself to Peter at a charcoal fire only two times a charcoal fire is found in the whole bible peter denying and peter being restored from that second fire onward i would say and i can point you to passages in first and second peter to substantiate it peter knew he was loved by jesus that's what changed so last week jesus was brought before annas the priest emeritus, today, it happened just a few moments later than last week's passage, Peter's denying Jesus, I am not, Lord willing, next week, there's an interrogation of Jesus before Annas, where he does get clubbed in the face, and then we get Peter's second and third denials. Why does John do that? Annas, denial, Annas, Caiaphas, denial, denial. He's the only gospel writer that sets it up like that. Why does he do it? Because the trials of Jesus and the denials of Peter, John wants you to see them together. Because the only solution for sinful men is a substitute Savior who goes to the cross to die for you. One of the most striking details to me in all the gospel accounts of the arrest and trial narrative of Jesus is after Peter's third denial, what happens? Jesus looks at him. He locks eyes with Peter. And I don't believe it's to condemn him. I believe he's letting Peter know that he's on the way to die for the sin that he just committed. And Peter one day soon would know it. Do you know it? How how would you like for all your most terrible moments to be recorded by God in Scripture for the whole world to see? You see, God's not in to just shaming and guilting Peter. That's not what this is about. It's about God accentuating his remarkable love for sinners like Peter who will come to him in Christ and say, I have no hope other than that you'll forgive me. I believe God means to accentuate his grace in Christ, which is why he weaves the trials of Jesus and the denials of Peter together. Do you remember what Annas' name means? One of John's many ironies we drew out last week. Yahweh is gracious. Peter's about to know that reality. He's about to know that there's more grace in Jesus than sin in Peter. And he's not just gonna know it, he's gonna know it. He's gonna know it. And he's gonna live the rest of his life out of the awareness of God's love for him. Something you could get from today's text, no matter how far you've fallen, how badly you've sinned, how long you've run from God, no matter what you've done. Something you can get from today's text is that Jesus went through this whole experience of torture and death to be the sacrifice that God required for you to be forgiven and for you to know. For you to know this is love. Not that you love Jesus, but that God loves you and gave his son to be The atoning sacrifice for your sin. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I pray that right here and right now, any who don't know you would turn in faith to Jesus, embrace your love, obliterate that wall of resistance, that sense of self protection that we all try to build because we think. If we don't let anybody all the way in, then we can't get hurt as badly. Oh no, Lord, I pray that you'd reverse all the effects of the curse and make our hearts wide open, fillet us open to your love and to love those around us with your love. Give us Jesus. And for all who feel so guilty, trapped, in their Jesus-denying, Jesus-belittling sin, I pray now, right here, right now, you would overwhelm them with the cross love of Jesus. That the whole reason he went to the cross was to forgive sinners like Peter and to restore them to his love. Lord, draw us to Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.